If I initiate a war, it seems logical that I'd know why I'm starting that war and what I expect to achieve by it. It might also be helpful if I let my opponent know that too, as it may help limit the intensity, duration, and long-term effects of that war. Why that is and how that does or doesn't reflect reality is the subject of this and following episodes of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome to episode 86 of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer, a retired U.S. Cavalry Colonel. The purpose of these episodes is to present every American citizen with information they need to understand war and then to take an informed role in our nation's decisions about war, peace, and the gray area in between. If you think these podcasts are worthwhile, please hit like, subscribe, or follow. According to 19th century German philosopher of war, Karl von Clausewitz, war is an active force to compel our enemy to do our will. Two related requirements derive from this statement. First, the side initiating the war must know what their will is, that is, what the attacker wants to achieve by the war. The second would be to let the opposing side know the attacker's will, what it has to submit to. In practice, this is rarely done. The American Declaration of Independence is an unusual example, laying out grievances and stating that our will was to have our own government, completely independent of Great Britain. In the World Wars, governments were very good at declaring the cause of war, sometimes with very vivid imagination, but they were poor at describing desired outcomes. Woodrow Wilson's speech to Congress requesting a declaration of war was a notable exception. The war against Iraq in 1991 was another noteworthy exception, stating exactly what the United Nations wanted to achieve. But is this public declaration of an end state of what the warring parties expect to achieve important? I think it is. Clausewitz went on to write, If the enemy is to be coerced, you must put him in a situation that is even more unpleasant than the sacrifice you call on him to make. If the opposing side doesn't know what you want him to sacrifice, he must consider the worst possible end state and will resist to the extreme. Expanding on this idea, Clausewitz wrote, The smaller the penalty you demand from your opponent, the less you can expect him to try and deny it to you. But to realize that, both sides need to know what penalty will be exacted. In his book, The Battle of Britain, author John Holland described how, after the fall of France, there was considerable debate within the British government about continuing the war with National Socialist Germany or seeking peace. The major hurdle was not knowing what Hitler demanded for that peace. Despite preparations by both sides for the invasion of Britain, we know that Hitler did not seriously consider nor desire such an invasion. He expected Britain to sue for peace. Without knowing what sacrifice would be demanded, however, the British government could not determine if the situation of continuing the war was more unpleasant than the outcome of a negotiated peace, even if it was only a temporary peace. Policy statements like unconditional surrender don't leave much room to negotiate a peace or for debate within the opposing government about ending the war. Just as bad are vague, shifting, or ill-defined statements of war aims. Even if all military objectives are achieved, uncertain war aims or objectives can still snatch strategic defeat from the jaws of military victory. For the defender to know what the attacker demands, the attacker needs to know what he wants to achieve by that war. This is a problem I addressed previously in these podcasts. It may seem obvious that a state would know why it's going to war, but history says this may not be true. In the First World War, Austria-Hungary started with a relatively modest but vague and perhaps unachievable aims. This centered around assuring the continued political existence of the dual monarchy. Serbia threatened that. 
It wasn't a military threat, but a political threat, as it was supporting movements attempting the breakup of that multicultural and multinational empire. Austria's objective was to militarily defeat Serbia and install a government that was, in more modern terms, an Austrian satellite state. Problems came with success and an expanding war that made war termination after the defeat of Serbia nearly impossible. As a result, war aims changed, at first becoming greater, often conflicting with their principal ally, Germany, then changing as the fortunes of war changed, and finally merely attempting to hold on to its original war aim of preserving the dual monarchy. Now, one would expect that for the defender, developing objectives beyond defending your home territory might take a bit of time. Initially, all physical and intellectual resources must focus on preserving territory, civilian lives, and military capability while denying strategic victory to the enemy. After some stabilization of the situation and defeat is no longer imminent, the defender must determine what objectives are necessary to secure peace on terms favorable to that country and its people. Merely defeating the enemy's attack will leave the enemy in position to renew its aggression at a later time and may leave territory, resources, and population under enemy control. At some point, therefore, the defender must either concede some measure of defeat to the attacker or counterattack to achieve objectives that will assure a just and sustainable peace. But what objectives will achieve that peace? As it was for the attacker, now the defender must determine what it wants to achieve by that war. The United States' entry into the First World War provided a rare example of that. Woodrow Wilson clearly stated the desired end state for the war, with regime change in Germany as a necessary precondition. This, in turn, would require the military defeat of German forces in Western Europe. After that, the victory would be secured through Wilson's 14-point peace plan. To sum up the idea thus far, Clausewitz noted that no one in his right mind starts a war without knowing what he wants to achieve by it. Further, victory depends on putting the enemy in a situation more intolerable than accepting what the other side wants to achieve by that war. However, for the enemy to know whether peace is preferable to war, he has to know what conditions that peace demands. Therefore, not only does the attacker need to understand what the objectives of the war are, he needs to communicate those objectives to the enemy. However, as I said near the beginning of this, such public statements are rare. Why? One reason might be a desire not to telegraph specific objectives to the enemy. If the enemy knew exactly what the intended end state was, he could focus on denying that end state, making any military success by the attacker irrelevant. Another reason might be to deceive the opponent into thinking that the price to be exacted is much less than what the attacker intends to exact. In the First World War, Germany surrendered believing or hoping that peace would be based on Wilson's 14 points. France, however, had its own objectives which it developed to justify its horrendous losses in the war. These two desired end states were opposed to one another. If France had been public with its war aims, Germany may have fought harder and longer, or the United States may have been unwilling to enter the war. Of course, yet another reason may simply be that the side initiating the conflict just hadn't thought that through or didn't think such objectives were necessary. But what does someone who wrote in the early 19th century and examples from an early 20th century war mean to us today? Quite a bit as we try to understand the current armed conflicts. How those lessons are relevant today, however, we'll have to wait for the next episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. So please hit like, follow, and join me then.